Welcome to Fort Lauderdale Primary Purpose Big Book Study Group, Thursday Night Alcoholics and God, Step Series. Uh, we don't have a joke for tonight, so I'm sorry about that. Um, think, oh, I'm a recovered alcoholic. My name is Alex. Thanks for joining us tonight. In a minute, we're going to start our two-minute meditation, so please take a moment, get situated. Please turn off all devices that make noise that might or will distract others. Take this time to get connected to God, let the craziness of the day drift away, and ask God to help you stay focused on the step study tonight. Is everybody ready? If so, let's start the meditation.
God, let your love shine through me like a fog light, so those who are lost, sick, and dying can find your love through me. Amen. There is a solution. From the big book, page 17, the tremendous fact for every one of us is that we have discovered a common solution. We have a way out on which we can absolutely agree and upon which we can join in brotherly and harmonious action. This is the great news this book carries to those who suffer from alcoholism. I've asked Violet to read Appendix 2, Spiritual Experience. We read this because the main purpose of the 12 steps is to have one, so it's kind of important to know what one is. Hi, I'm Violet. I'm an alcoholic. Hi. The terms spiritual experience and spiritual awakening are used many times in this book, which, upon careful reading, shows that the personality change sufficient to bring about recovery from alcoholism has manifested itself among us in many different forms. Yet it is true that our first printing gave us gave many readers the impression that these personality changes or religious experiences must be in the nature of sudden and spectacular upheavals happily for everyone this conclusion is erroneous in the first few chapters a number of sudden revolutionary changes are described though it was not our intention to create such an impression many alcoholics have nevertheless concluded that in order to recover they must acquire an immediate and overwhelming god consciousness followed at once by a vast change in feeling and outlook among our rapidly growing membership of thousands of alcoholics, such transitions, though frequent, are not by are by no means the rule. Most of our experiences are what the psychologist William James calls the educational variety because they develop slowly over a period of time. Quite often, friends of the newcomer are aware of the difference long before he is himself. He finally realizes that he has undergone a profound alteration in his reaction to life, that such a change could hardly have been brought about by himself alone. What often takes place in a few months could seldom have been accomplished by years of self-discipline. With few exceptions, our members find that they have, been, that they have tapped an unsuspected inner resource, which they presently identify with their own conception of a power greater than themselves. Most of us think this awareness of a power greater than ourselves is the essence of spiritual experience. Our more religious members call it God consciousness. Most emphatically, we wish to say that any alcoholic capable of honestly facing his problems in the light of our experience can recover, provided he does not close his mind to all the spiritual concepts. He can only be defeated by an attitude of intolerance or belligerent denial. We find that no one 
need have difficulty with the spirituality of the program. Willingness, honesty, and open-mindedness are the essentials of recovery, but these are indispensable. The principle, which is a bar against all information, which is proof against all arguments, and which cannot fail to keep a man in everlasting ignorance, that principle is contempt prior to investigation. Herbert Spencer. Please refrain from disturbing others by talking or constantly getting up and sitting back down. This is a tech-free meeting, so your phones should be set to airplane mode or meeting mode or just turned off. Uh, tonight we have Tom. Um, he's starting a 12-step series. I've actually never heard him speak, so I don't really have his, any input on what it's going to bring, but I hear nothing but good things, so I'm very excited to hear him speak. Tom. This is the reason why I brought this hat, you know. It's not the only reason. It's... I remember being here four years ago, you know. My name's Tom. I'm an alcoholic. And uh, those lights are so bright that... Uh, but I know Mike is, is podcasting this and needs me to stand up here behind the microphone so he can carry the message. And I just want to thank Mike... Uh, for all his years of service and carrying the message to alcoholics. <laughs> he and his sponsors do a great job, and uh, and I'm happy to be here with you, you know. I mean, I'd, I'd rather be no place else than here with you, uh, talking to you and, and, and doing steps. Uh, you know, that's the light of my life. You know, it's... Uh, I've been doing this for a long time. Uh, I just celebrated 38 years on the 9th of December. Hoorah. <laughs> got sober. December the 9th, 1983. Um, you know, this is, this is the big book, right? The big book, Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, including the doctor's opinion... In the first 164 pages, which is the program of recovery in Alcoholics Anonymous, practically one-third of that is about the first step. So I guess that tells us right there how important tonight is and how important that first step is. And uh, I'm going to tell you a story because that's what I do. I'm a storyteller, you know, and I share my experience, strength, and hope, not my opinions and ideas. They're what I was taught to share, you know, by the old-timers who brought me up in Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm old-time AA, and the story that I'm going to tell you is about this guy, this guy who came here 48 years ago. From the uh, time that I can remember, as far back as I can remember, I never 
never was comfortable. I always knew that there was something wrong. For as far back as I can remember, I was always restless, irritable, and discontent. I never wanted to be who I was or where I was or doing what I was doing. I always wanted to be someplace else and doing something else and trying to be somebody else. I didn't want to be me. I was born in 1952 in Springfield, Illinois, and alongside the cornfields and in the 50s as a kid, you know, and some of us who have a little age, let's remember the all the black and white space movies, you know, and flying saucer movies and everything in the 50s and the, the aliens and everything and the comic books, you know, that I escaped through because that's where I found my first escapes, you know, was in science fiction books and comic books and fantasy, living in a fantasy world. I mean, I knew who Conan was before anybody did, you know. I wanted to be Conan. And I used to lay up there in my bed, you know, and I'd look out in the cornfield at night and I'd think that some night, you know, a flying saucer is going to land out here in the cornfield and they're going to pick me up and take me to the world where I belong, where I'll probably be made king, okay, because that's what I should be. I should be the king, you know, and they just lost me somewhere and, uh, you know, they're coming to get me. And uh, I never uh, was good at, uh, at sports. Let me put it this way. I couldn't be perfect, really. That's what the problem was, see. I couldn't be better than everybody else. And I had to be better than everybody else. And, you know, I mean, I didn't play well with other children. Because if they said something, you know, for instance, if I struck out at bat and somebody laughed, I might throw the bat at them. I had a very bad temper as a kid. And I, I didn't uh, take too much to teasing. You know, I was quick to jump on somebody. And uh, that always uh, got me in a lot of trouble. And I couldn't be very good at book learning uh, because, you know, I really wasn't interested in what the nuns wanted to teach me uh, about grammar and spelling. I still can't spell. I'm 69 years old and I still, I spell so bad even the spell check doesn't understand what I'm saying. You know? Spell check doesn't even help me. So, you know, <laughs> I couldn't be the best at, at books. I couldn't be the best at sports. And by the time I got in the fifth grade, you know, the reason I was in the country young because my father was in the construction business. I grew up in the construction business. And my father was a, a developer of kinds, you know. He, he would uh, uh, get money guys like dentists and doctors to pool their money together and buy a farm on the outskirts of town. And that's how subdivisions were built. They used to be farms. And uh, we would, he would move us into the farmhouse, and we lived on the job. So the last thing we'd tear down is 
the farmhouse, and then we'd move back to town. And by the time I got in the fifth grade, you know, and I'd pretty much only been out in the country with my brother to play out in the woods with and stuff, but by the time we got back to town, you know, we were living in the early 60s, you know, on a street where there was a lot of kids. And there were a lot of gangs, you know. And I found a gang. And I found a home. And I found where I belonged. Because, you see, I never could be good at being good. But I found out I could be real good at being bad. And, uh, and, and that was important to me because I never felt like I belonged until then. And, and that group became very important to me. And as time went on, uh, as I got older and I first got into high school, you know, I was wandering in the woods one day, and we were basically, we were thieves, you know. We stole everything. And we rumbled with other little gangs and stuff. That's the kind of stuff we did. And, you know, we, we were always in trouble in school. I was always in trouble. And uh, I found this bottle of wine in the woods. It was February in Illinois. And it was cold, like zero, you know. And it was a big bottle of what we, what the old folks used to call Dago Red, you know. Especially if you're Irish like me, you, you know, you'd say you'd call it that. Bottle of Chianti with the straw all around the bottom and the glass, you know. And somebody had stole it and stashed it there in the woods. And uh, I found it. I saw it in the bushes. And I thought, I better drink this. I, I want to see what this feels like, you know. And so I started guzzling it down, and I still remember. It was so cold, and the wine was so cold, there were ice chips in the wine. And I could still remember the ice chips melting in my throat, you know, as that wine went down. I guzzled that whole bottle of wine, probably more than a quart, you know, of wine. I sucked it all down. And I puked all over myself, and I passed out in the weeds. <laughs> and that's my drunk log, you know. I mean, we all know how to get drunk. I don't need to stand up here and tell you how to get drunk. You wouldn't be here if you didn't know how to get drunk. But I'll tell you this much, I never had a drink in my life that I didn't get drunk. I fell in love with that feeling. That feeling took, took it was the solution to my feelings about myself because it took all those feelings away it made me feel wonderful and I fell in love with that feeling and, and that and that was all I cared about and I spent years you know constantly pursuing that feeling all the time and and substances didn't matter this isn't about the substances you know because alcohol did not make me an alcoholic and drugs didn't make me a drug addict. I have a disease that centers in my mind. And it's a talking disease. It talks to me. 
And you know what it says to me? It says, you know how to run your life. And you know how to run everybody else's life. And you know the way life ought to run. And if it had just run your way, everything would be fine. This is the real disease of alcoholism. This alcoholism needs to be talked about. It needs to be talked about what it really is. And I had a lot of problems. The reason I had a lot of problems is because I never drank without getting drunk. I never had a drink in my life without getting drunk. That's the reason I drank. I don't know what it's like to be a social drinker. I never heard of such a thing, you know, for me. I don't understand what that means. Now, I used to live with a woman in my 20s, and she was president of the bartenders union in Peoria, Illinois, where I lived after I got out of the Army. And I would go to the bar every night, and she would come out on Saturday night. She had Saturday night off. She had the best bar in town, Pier Marquette Hotel. And they, because she was president of the union, they'd give her the night, Saturday night off. And she liked to drink schnapps on the rocks and a little jigger, you know. Uh, you know what a big shot glass is, you know, for you who aren't stone boozers like me. And the ice used to melt in her glass. And I never had a drink in my life that the ice melted in my glass. I don't think I've ever had a soft drink or a glass of iced tea that the ice melts in my glass because I don't drink that way. Bartenders used to say, man, I never seen anybody drink like him, you know. He just sucks it down. You know, I wouldn't even drink, I like beer and whiskey. I was not a cocktail drinker. I don't even know what a Tom Collins tastes like or how you even make one. But I like shots and beers, you know. And I wouldn't drink, I'd stand at the bar, I wouldn't drink a, a, a beer out of the bar. I asked for a glass. Now, why do you think I asked for that glass? Because I can throw a glass of beer down a lot faster than you can suck it out of a bottle. Because I'm there to get drunk. That's what I'm there for. And when I would look at her, you know, we'd be standing at the bar Saturday night, be three deep at the bar. And, uh, you know, I've, after a couple hours, I probably had 15, 20 shots and beers, you know, sucking them down, talking to guys. She's talking to the women and... And, and I'd look over, she'd be on her third schnapps on the rocks with the melted ice in the glass, you know, nursing on it, sipping on it a little bit. And I would say, well, honey, you want another drink? Oh, no, I'm starting to feel it. <laughs> and I used to think, what's wrong with this woman? You know, she's a prude. She doesn't know how to have a good time. I don't contemplate that. I have no contemplation over what that means that I don't want anymore. Because when I start to feel it, that's when it's time for more. That's not when it's time to put it away. That's when it's time to put the pedal to the metal and let's start partying, okay? And I don't know when I'm coming home. You know, it might be a few days. And it might be, you know, after several years puking in the morning and sucking down whiskey and puking and sucking down whiskey and puking until I can keep the whiskey in me to stop from being sick. That's the way I drank. So we know how I drank, you know. We drank, if, we, if you drank like me, 
then you're a real alcoholic like me. If you use drugs like me, I never had enough drugs either. I never had enough of nothing, you know, because I used for the effect. And because of that, you know, I, uh, I started to get in a lot of trouble. I was in the Army, you know, and I'd been in the Army for about three years, and uh, I don't want to get into all that, you know. Uh, but let me say this, you know, not only was I an al- am I an alcoholic and, and a drug addict, but, you know, for most of my younger years, I was a criminal, too. Stone criminal. You know, that's the way I came up. I was all about dealing dope. You know, and I dealt a lot of dope in the Army. And I was a heroin addict. I'd started putting a needle in my arm at 17. Because we were robbing drug warehouses. All the two and alls and second alls and amatols and black beauties and white crosses, and Christmas trees. And we were just selling them so we could buy weed and acid. But my buddy come back from Vietnam, and he was uh, in the Battle of Quezon, Devil Dog Marine, with a big China white habit. And I knew he'd like some of this stuff. And we sat there and watched him run these three-grain two-and-alls. And he said, you want to try it? And I said, yeah. And I sat around shooting dope with him for a year, listening to him talk all about how wonderful the drug life was in the Marines and over in Vietnam. And as soon as I turned 18, I joined the Army. Not because I was a patriot, but because I was a dope fiend. That's what dope fiends do. I was out for the drugs and the lifestyle and the dealing. And I went to Germany and I got into a gang in Germany. I always find a way to get in with the boys, okay, who are doing what I want to do. And after a few years, they got a little bit tired of that, threw me out. They let me out down here, you know, in the VA hospital in Miami because my dad, who was uh, always wanted to come to Florida after the, during the war he was here, and he always wanted to come to Florida and, 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 and live here, and he came in 72 when I was overseas, so they discharged me, you know, general under honorable for being a heroin addict. And I was locked up in hospitals for three months because I had hepatitis at the same time. And uh, I got out in the VA hospital after being in old Nazi hospitals in Germany and and up in Georgia. And they let me out down here and they asked me if I wanted treatment and I wanted nothing to do with uh, with their treatment. You know, I wanted nothing to do with it. I just wanted out. I've been locked up for three months. And so uh, I said, no, I'm, I'm, I'm out. I want out. And I remember going out the back door of the VA hospital in Miami, and I had a duffel bag full of uniforms, and I, I took the duffel bag and threw it in the dumpster. And I says, I'll never cut my hair or shave again. And, uh, and I went to a taxi driver that was sitting there, a taxi cab sitting there, and jumped in the back seat, and I said, take me to Pompano Beach. And he said, you mean Pompano? And I says, I don't know what the hell I mean. I'm, not, I'm from Illinois. I've never been here before, you know. And he took me up to Pompano and 
to the old man's place, and the old man was superintendent on a job, and he said, well, I, I don't have any work for you, but they're building a, they were building a sewer plant in Coral Springs. They're just building Coral Springs, 1973. Not much out there in those days. A Publix and a Chinese restaurant and a bar and a 7-Eleven and some houses. Now look how many people are there. And uh, I went to work, and uh, they had told me before I left the BA, they said, don't drink because your liver's messed up from having that hep C. You know, well, we didn't know it was hep C in those days. Serum hepatitis from shooting dope with somebody else who had hep. And uh, they said, don't drink, you know, and I was clean off of shooting dope. I didn't want to go back to that. But, you know, when you work in construction, all construction workers do is talk about the bar last night on the job. Then when they get to the bar, all they do is talk about the day that they were on the job. You know, that's how it works. Eh? And I'm lonely. I don't have anybody to hang around with, to be with. You know, and that's important to me, to have my people, my boys, and be with them, you know. And so, you know, I, I'm 21 now. You know, I'm legal now. And uh, so I lasted not very long, maybe two months, not even that, maybe six weeks or so. And one night, me and this other veteran are out here at the VFW implantation, and we both got our own bottles of vodka. And the last I remember before I went in a blackout is we were rolling around beating the hell out of each other out, outside the dance, you know which is typical if you drink with me. That's the kind of stuff you end up doing. And um, when I came out of the blackout, I was in a hospital. It was on a, a gurney, and it was kind of dark, and the curtains were around me, and I sat up, and there was a sink and a mirror there, and I looked at, I looked at myself, and my nose was split open and my face was all black and blue and my clothes were sitting there. And I picked my clothes up and I, and, and I says, I got to get out of here, you know. And uh, I got up, got my clothes on, but I, I didn't get out the door when a couple of nurses stopped me. And they said, where are you going? I said, I'm leaving. I said, I don't, I don't have the money to pay you people. I got to leave. And they said, oh, you can't leave. And I said, why not? And they said, the state police are out here. They want you. Did you ever get that look from people when they say something like that to you and you go, want me for what? <laughs> they look at you like, what are you, nuts? You don't know what for? Well, what do you mean what for? You don't know that you hit a carload of people out here at Powerline and Sample? Now, in those days, that was all bell peppers and cucumbers and stuff. That was the country. And I said, I don't even have a car. <laughs> and they said, well, you were driving your buddy's pickup. And I said, well, where's he? And they said, well, he went through the windshield. He doesn't have any right eyebrow. That's gone. We sewed it up, and we sent him home. And you broke the steering wheel with your face. That's what happened to you. But the problem is there was a bunch of little kids in that car, and they're going to need plastic surgery. You messed them up bad. Now, you see, for the first time in my life, I had remorse. I felt remorse. I never felt any remorse for my life. I hung around with people who were just like me, criminals too. 
dope fiends, boozers. That's what I liked. You could put me in the richest town in this country and I'll find the worst joint to hang out in. I'm strictly a low-bottom drunk. I come right off the street. I'm a street guy. I love that life. I loved honky-tonks, you know. I loved the, that. That was my whole life. And uh, I was going to school at, B on, at BCC doing air conditioning because there was no construction. There had been a big recession, and I just wanted to get a couple hundred bucks a month from the from the veterans, you know, to stay drunk on, high on, buy dope, buy reefer. And uh, I was sitting next to, I was sitting next to this guy who was a Korean War veteran, and he saw my face, and he wanted to know what happened to me. And so I told him the story, and he asked me if I wanted to have coffee, if he could buy me a cup of coffee at McDonald's, you know, and I had to wait on the bus anyway, you know, so we went next door to BCC. There was a McDonald's over on Coconut Creek, and we he bought me a cup of coffee. And that man started talking to me about alcoholism. And nobody had ever talked to me about alcoholism. People had always talked to me about, why don't you straighten up? Why don't you do the right thing? Why don't you stop being a bum? Why don't you grow up? Why can't you act like your brother? Why can't you behave yourself? It was always about behavior. It was never about alcoholism. And riding home after having that conversation and thinking, I'm sitting there on that bus and I'm thinking to myself, what is my problem? Why is my life such a mess? And it was like inside of my head a whisper that said, you're an alcoholic like the man's talking about. That wasn't my voice. And I said, yeah, that's right. That's what I am, an alcoholic. And I went home. We had phone books in those days, you know, and I opened the the page up on the yellow pages in AA was right there on the first page, intergroup. And I called them and they told me about a meeting that was down the street from my house in a Catholic church. And I went over there that night and I had hair down to here and a beard down to here and I stood in the bushes and I watched all these middle-aged squares going into the back door of this Catholic church. And I thought, what in the hell am I doing here? I don't want to be here. You know, these people don't even look like me. I'm 21 years old. They're in their 50s and 60s, you know. And uh, and the greeter saw me lurking around. <laughs> and he snatched me, you know. That's why the greeter's a great job. Always be a greeter. I love greeters, you know. Greeter's one of the best service jobs you can have. He snatched me, and he brought me in there, and he introduced me to all these old farts, you know, and... And I sit down at the table, and they got coffee, and they got donuts, and I'm thinking, this is pretty good, you know. And uh, they're talking to me, you know, and, and, and I'm liking that. They're being nice to me. I wasn't used to people being nice to me. 
Because I was the kind of guy that if you brought me to the bar where you drank, your bartender would tell you, don't bother coming back if you're going to bring him. Because, you know, I'm 5'7", and you put a little whiskey in me, and all of a sudden I'm 7'5", and I might go up somebody's head with, one, with a heavy ashtray. I'm always looking for a heavy ashtray to put my hand on. And I'm trouble. I'm loudmouth, obnoxious, aggressive alcoholic. There's nothing passive about me. I'm totally aggressive, you know. And, uh, and so... I start thinking because, you know, I'm a great thinker. I'm, I'm very good at thinking, you know. And I know I'm clever. I figure stuff out. That's what I do. I've been figuring out for years to how to stay out of jail. I haven't been to jail yet. There's a lot of things that hadn't happened to me yet 48 years ago when I first walked through the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous. A whole lot of things hadn't happened to me. I hadn't been to jail yet. I figured out how to get by. They tried to put me in prison in the army. And I played them. And ended up not being put in prison and getting a decent discharge because of the way I played them. Because they invented piss testing. And I asked them to give me the piss test. Because they wanted to put me in prison for being a dope dealer. But they could never catch me with anything. And I knew it was only a matter of time. And I knew they had to give me the good discharge. And they did. I was always getting by with everything. You know, that's part of my deal. I'm always getting by with everything. And uh, so I started thinking, you know, uh, well, you know, I'm going to have to go in front of a judge. And it'd probably be a good thing if I hung around here and not hang around in the bars I need to stay away from that, and I need to be here. And, you know, there was no Narcotics Anonymous in Fort Lauderdale in those days. There was only Alcoholics Anonymous. And the only place for a dope fiend alcoholic like me to go was to AA. And the people in Alcoholics Anonymous used to say, we don't drink and we don't take any mind or mood-altering drugs. That was for the people, you know, that did dope like me. And I could hardly wait for these meetings to get over so I could get out in my car, reach underneath my seat, pull my bag of weed out, roll me up a nice big fat one. I tell you this story because I want you to understand the thinking, my thinking process. Roll me up a big fat one, start talking on it, and I'd say to myself, well, this doesn't alter my mind or my mood. It enhances it. <laughs> this is a mind and mood enhancing drug. Of course, I never brought that up as a topic of discussion or asked anybody else in AA what they thought about that because I knew already. I knew. See? Because, you see, I run my life. You know, I come in here and I look up there with those steps, you know, and I see, well, yeah, I got a problem with alcohol. I'll admit to that. I had a problem with shooting dope. I'll admit to that. And I got the solution to that. Just don't shoot any dope. Don't drink any liquor. Case closed. What do I need the rest of this for? You might need that. You might need these steps, and you might need this book, and you might need that sponsor, and you might need those prayers, and you might need all that stuff, but I don't need that. I know what I need. 
Don't tell me how to run my life. Because I run my life. Nobody's going to tell me how to run my life. I'd have made up my mind a long time ago when I was a kid. Everybody wants you to act like them and dress like them and talk like them and do what they do. And I ain't having none of that. I'm going to do what I want to do. And nobody's going to make me do anything I don't want to do. Now, I'll pretend to be whatever you want me to be. So I can use you. Just like I'm using those good people in AA. So I can use you because that's who I really am. Who I really am is I am a user and an abuser of drugs and alcohol and people, places, and things. That's who I really am. Even though I think I'm a nice guy who just been jerked around by everything and everybody. And I got a right to be pissed and aggressive. You know, and I think, well, I'm just going to hang around with these folks. And after several months, I got in front of the judge. And the judge said to me, what's your problem, son? And I knew exactly what to tell him. I learned to say it in AA. You want me to say I'm an alcoholic. Isn't that what you wanted me to say for me to hang around here with you? So that's what I'm going to tell you. Yeah, I'm Tom and I'm an alcoholic. You want me to say that? I'll say whatever you want me to say because I need to use you. And I knew what to say to that judge. I was trained in AA to say it. I said, well, Your Honor, I'm an alcoholic. But if you give me a break, I'm going to the meetings and I'm doing the right thing. And I promise you, you know, I won't be in trouble again. And that judge... I asked him, I said, just give me a break. And he, he did the worst thing he could have done. He gave me that break. Because, you see, I ain't the kind of guy you can give a break to. Because when you give a guy like me a break, I just learned that works. And I can work it. And I spent the next 10 years working it. And every time I got in a jackpot, I knew where to run to. Run back to AA. Tell everybody it's going to be different this time. I'm telling you, I got it now. I'm done, okay? You don't have to worry about me. You know, I, I, I'm going to do the right thing. I'm going to go to meetings. I'll get cards signed, whatever, whatever you want me to do. But all I really want to do is get my shit back get my license back, get my car back, get a girlfriend back, get a place to live back, get a job back, get some money back, get the law off my back, get my folks off my back, and then I'm going to get right back doing what I want to do. Because I don't want to do this. I don't see any reason to do this. I'm running my life. I'm working it fine. I'm quitting every time that I need to. Every time I need to, I'm quitting. But you see, alcoholism, it has a trick for you. If it doesn't kill you, if you survive alcoholism, it has a trick for you. That trick is called progression. And it never gets any better. All it does is get worse. 
and they ruined my drinking from the first time I walked in the room because I knew deep down in me that I was an alcoholic like they were talking about themselves. I knew that. I knew that I couldn't drink. I never could drink in good conscience again. But drinking will take your conscience away. That's why I love to drink. I don't have to think if I drink. And I can drink it all away. I don't have to think about it. In the periods of time that I could spend out there on the street, they got shorter because I went to the bottom faster. And the periods of time that I could spend sitting in these rooms, they got shorter too because it's hard to sit around in these rooms and be so full of crap. And you know you're full of crap. You know you're not doing the deal like the other people doing. You know you think you're different, that you don't have to do that. That's what you're telling yourself. I don't have to do that. A man came up to me one night. He says, you know what your problem is, Tom? Because, you know, people in AA love to tell you about what your problem is. They have the same problem as you. And I said, no, what's my problem? He says, well, you think you're unique. And I said, well, I don't see how that's a problem. Listen, man, I like being unique. Why do you think my whole body's tattooed? Because I want to be unique. I don't want to be like you. Right? He said, yeah, he says, but you've got terminal uniqueness. It's killing you. And I didn't think that was funny. He thought it was funnier than hell. He laughed his ass off. And I wanted to smack him. You know, they were always saying smart aleck stuff to me all the time, these people in AA. You know, I used to argue with them all the time, and the old timers just pat me on the back. They'd say, well, it's okay, Tom. You've got a right to be wrong. I said, well, what in the hell you mean by that? What's, that? what's that supposed to mean? Tell a man he's got a right to be wrong. That was a real problem with me. Because you see, deep down in me, I didn't think I could be wrong. I had to be right. I had to be right. And you had to be wrong. All that mattered was that I was right and you were wrong. All my life, I tried to prove you all wrong. And I'm the one who's right. I run my show. And now, my great idea now after 10 years of doing this is, well, if I got enough cocaine to shoot, I can just drink all I want. (laughs) And maybe it'll keep me from going into blackouts. Didn't work very well. I kept waking up in jail cells and in the weeds. And I'd go, I'm Central House guy from Delray Beach. And I'd go in the old Central House, American Legion, and I'd sit there at those tables and I'd tell those people in there, I'm done. I'm done. And I believe that. Let me tell you something. I believe that was the truth about me, that I was done. And I'd get up and I'd walk out of that meeting and right down the street and hear music coming out of a bar and tell myself, I'm just going in here to listen to music. So I'm lonely. And I don't want to hang around them people in AA always telling me what I need to do. I need some, they stress me out. I need some stress-free time away from them and just drink some Cokes and hang out with these people, you know. 
I'd sit there looking at myself in the mirror because I love to look at myself in the mirror sitting at the bar, sipping a Coke and looking at all them bottles, you know. And then I'd look up, you know, at the clock on the wall and I'd tell myself, you know what? I'll bet you if I keep my eye on that clock, I won't take my I won't ta- I won't take my eyes off of it. I don't care if a beautiful girl comes and sits down next to me. I'm not talking to her. I'm not talking to the bartender. I'm not talking to anybody. I'm just going to keep my eye on that clock and I'm going to make myself drink for an hour. And I'm not going to go in a blackout. And I'm going to get up from this bar and it's going to be different this time. You know how insane that is? How many times I've told myself that? How I've been saying that to myself for years. And I come out of a blackout in a jail cell again. And I'm sitting there, you know, trying to think about sobering up in that jail cell. I'm waiting to go to gun club, the county jail in Palm Beach again. And I'm sitting in the Boynton City Jail waiting to be transferred. And I'm sitting there and I'm thinking to myself, I'm thinking again. What's my problem? Why can't I straighten my life out? Why does this stuff keep happening to me? And then it was like that little voice that had talked to me years ago that told me I was an alcoholic that said to me, because you're crazy, Tom. (laughs) And the reason you're crazy is because you think you can run your life but you can't. But you believe that you can. And that's why you're insane. And for the first time, I said, yeah, that's the truth. That's the truth about me. Not only am I powerless over alcohol and substances that I put in me, but my life is unmanageable because my thinking doesn't work. My thinking doesn't work. I want to think, oh yeah, my life's unmanageable because I get drunk and thrown in jail. Therefore, if I don't get drunk, I won't get thrown in jail. I manage my life because I'm not drinking. I got news for you. I haven't had a drink or a drug in 38 years. And my life's still unmanageable. Because I got alcoholism. I don't have alcoholism. It ain't never a wasm. And it's still a disease that's centered in my mind. A talking disease. And it wants to talk to me. And I wake up every morning with untreated alcoholism. And I have to treat my alcoholism. An old man who tried at the 101 Club for years to help me. Never saw me get it. An old man named Tex. But I remembered an awful lot that he gave me. He said, you know what? Yesterday's booze ain't getting me drunk today. And yesterday's sobriety ain't keeping me sober today. You better ask yourself, what are you going to do today to stay sober? Because that's all that matters is the day that you're in. You know? I couldn't stop. And I needed help. And I knew I did. Because I couldn't even put days together anymore. 
And I was, you know, I was crazy, as we say in construction, crazy as a shithouse rat, okay? And I went to the VA. I begged them to take me in now. After 10 years before that, when they wanted to give it to me, they brought me in there for two months and put me on anti-abuse. And I was always running to Alcoholics Anonymous because I was afraid, you know, I was going to die or I'm going to go to the penitentiary. Now I've been in the stockade and I've been in county jails and I'm going down. You know, I always had reservations. I, even then I, I, I went because I knew I had these uh, attempted burglary charges against me. And, and I was still figuring if I get into the VA over in Tampa, why, you know, uh, the state's attorney will probably stop chasing me. And he did. That worked. And then I'm sitting one day after lunch, and, there, and there's all these older veterans. I'm Vietnam-era veteran. There's Korean War-era veterans. There's Second World War-era veterans. And it's December. And it's cold up north. And I'm listening to these guys talking after lunch, sitting at the table. And they're talking about how every winter they get off the streets of Chicago and New York and Philly and they come down to Tampa to go to the VA. And they've been doing it for 20 years. I've been doing it 10 years. They've been doing it 20, 25, 30 years like it's a damn resort or something. Never getting sober. And I'm looking at those guys and they've been in now the penitentiary too. And I'm thinking, I'm not going to die. I'm not going to die. These guys ain't dead. They're sitting at the same table I'm sitting at. And I'm not going to die. I'm just going to keep on living this stinking, miserable life over and over and over again. And I made up my mind right then. I want a new way of life. And I became willing. I got honest. I got open-minded. And I got willing. And when I came out of there, after two months, I went to go back to the old central house in Delray Beach. And as I went to walk through the door, there was an old man, his name was Dennis, and he was standing in my way in the doorway. And he wouldn't let me pass. I thought, what's wrong with this guy? He wouldn't let me pass. I said, what's up? He said, where are you going? I said, I'm going to the meeting. He said, you don't want to get sober. I said, what are you talking about? I've been sober two months in the VA hospital. Yeah, that's easy. I heard. Had John Anna abuse. Locked up in the VA. Easy to stay sober that way. Well, what are you going to do now? And I'm thinking, who the hell is this guy? He's busting my balls for asking me, what am I going to do now? And I said, well, what do you want me to do? in my defiant way, because defiance is my outstanding characteristic. He says, well, all I want you to do is what I've been trying to tell you for years to do. And I'm thinking, I don't even know this son of a bitch. What's he talking about trying to tell me for years to do? And I said, well, what, what's that? And he said, get on your knees and ask God for the strength to stay clean and sober. And I looked at him and I said to him, I don't see how that's going to do any good. And he asked me this question. He said, how's your way been working, wise guy? 
How's your way been working for you? What are you going to say with a track record like mine? Great. No. I said, I guess it. Oh, I couldn't even say, say, I guess it's okay. I guess it, I, I couldn't even say you're right. All I could say was, I guess you're right. I couldn't even say you're right. I'm so egotistical. I couldn't even say you're right. All I could say is, I guess you're right. And then he told me the best thing in AA that anybody ever told me. He said, then I guess what you believe in doesn't make any difference then, does it? Because what you believe in doesn't work. Well, you know what? I'm not asking you to believe. Because this thing here, it ain't about what you're willing to believe. It's about what are you willing to do? What are you willing to do? Are you willing just to try and try and be sincere? And I said, yeah, okay. My way don't work. My thinking doesn't work. That's what my life being unmanageable means. The problem was the second half. And every problem that we have in Alcoholics Anonymous and in staying sober is a first step problem. It's one that has to be 100%. Or we're not going anyplace else. I couldn't go anyplace else. And in 38 years, I've never known anybody. And I got a man sitting right there in front of me. will tell you the same thing that I've been sponsoring for years. That running your own show don't work. Listening to your own thinking don't work. That there's a whole way of life that we can have in Alcoholics Anonymous. But surrender is the key. That's the key. Not acceptance. That's just some guy's opinion in a story in the back of the big book. Surrender is the key. And I have to surrender. Surrender 100%. Next week we'll start talking about that. Uh, let's thank the speaker one more time. And we have James as our secretary. He's going to come up and do his report. With his loving arms. The statistic above suggests a 75-plus percent success rate. Can I get a show of hands of recovered alcoholics out there? Ooh, that's nice, like half the room. Is there anyone that needs a sponsor? Anybody need a sponsor? If you're too shy, you can come to one of us after the meeting. Uh, please join us Monday nights for the Big Book study meeting where the Big Book comes alive. Fellowships at 6.30 and the Big Book, starts, uh, Big Book study starts at 7.15. That's up on the third floor in the church. We have CDs, mugs, large print Big Books, little red book, and Big Book dictionaries for sale in the back. And we meet here every Thursday starting at 7.15. See you next week. Yeah, so I'd like to invite everybody to the Monday Night Big Book Study. And those who wish to thank the speaker tonight, please line up down the center aisle. And let's close with the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, 
Lord in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Thine is the kingdom, power, and glory forever. See you on Monday or next Thursday. Thank you.
Chase, here's that song you've been asking me for for a million years. I finally pulled it out the pulled it out the corners of my mind, and um, here you go. Thanks. Mm-hmm. 
Twist and turn each way Flowers blooming all the time Outside my door Never before I had to change everything To realize That today is the best day of my God bless. I love you, Mike Chase. Bye.
Take. Got one man that just won't say. 